friends, Kyla here, introducing the last of our bonus episodes that we are putting out from the Harbinger Media Network Telethon. We kicked it off with our own, of course, and decided to share the rest so y'all could have a sampling of the wonderful voices that we share the Harbinger Media Network with. This episode, you'll hear Scott Schmidt in Medicine Hat and Jeremy Appel in Calgary welcome Kino Lefters, Evan McDonald, and Bridget Sterling in Edmonton the forgotten corner to hate watch Danielle Smith's unhinged victory speech. Then Dogwood Comms Director and Harbinger Board Member Kaina Gatta sits down with Jitson Land Defender Colin Sutherland Wilson, as well as the Suzuki Foundation's Janelle Lapointe and Harsha Wela to unpack the past and present history of colonialism in progressive so-called British Columbia. If you want to watch the entire 12-hour telethon in full, there is a link in the description. And this telethon was part of the fundraising campaign for Harbinger this year, so if you like that Harbinger is bringing together a network of progressive left podcasts in Canada, then you can support the network by going to harbingermedianetwork.com join. The first 50 to support at the $100 a year level will receive a new release from Canada's legacy left book publisher, Between the Lines. And now here is the final episode. Tip of the cap to long-suffering uh, technical producer Marino Greco, and a big thank you to the Big Shiny Tapes Institute for diligently just like plowing through uh, and driving this train down the track all the way to almost midnight. We're we're getting there. This is the second last hour of I know what you did last telethon, and I'm super thrilled because we have. The Forgotten Corner, Scott Schmidt in Medicine Hat and Jeremy Appel in Calgary. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, buddy. You got Evan McDonald, uh, Kino Lefter in Edmonton. Hi, Evan. Hi, Andre. It's me, Kino. <laughs> and we have Bridget Sterling. Bridget, are you also in Calgary? No, I'm in Edmonton. I'm where the cool kids live. Cool. Yeah, I love it. Are you guys Valley. like across the hall from each other? Yes. You got the Mutart Garden. You got the, you got the yep. Butter Dome. Um, and you got the Coliseum and more, uh, the new library, um, et cetera. You guys, um, so this has been a great stream so far. Uh, we did reach the uh, pinnacle of 100 members in total on Harbinger, but that was um, up from 94. So that means we got six over the course of this telethon. It's great. It's wonderful. This is a month-long fundraising effort. Uh, we are going to try to hit 150 by the end of November. So if you're watching the stream, if you're enjoying the stream, and of course you are, it's been fantastic, um, consider giving just a few dollars a month to this community uh, to help us grow and, and help us expand and to nurture um, the, the relationships that we have and everything else like that. For five bucks a month, you get a merch mail out once a year with stickers, pins, postcards. And for just $10 a month, if you want to be a mutual aid supporter, um, you can also get a free book from our pals at Between the Line Books who are generously sponsoring this telethon. Um, check that out at harbingermedianetwork.com slash join. And I'm going to pass it off to these guys. I'm super excited. I'll see you on the other side. And stay tuned for Kainagata, Colin Wilson, and Harsha Walia for our 11 p.m. to midnight slot talking about the dark shadows over BC. And now the dark shadows cast over the legislature building in Edmonton. Uh, I'll leave it to you guys. Bye. Thank Thanks, you, Andre. Andre. Bye, Andre. So uh, last Hi, everybody. Week, 
<laughs> yeah, hello. How's everyone? How do you start a crossover episode of the Forgotten Corner and Kino Lefter? We'll all talk at the same time. Uh, That's right. Then, That's right. Uh, forgotten corners. Move, movie screens have corners. And if you lift up that corner, you'll see the rot within. We're here to talk about that rot. And it's growing in the hearts of maybe more and more Albertans or less and less Albertans because they're they're being radicalized by Rachel Notley's left-wing militia. Well, my soon-to-be MLA is going to fucking ride in and save everyone. Don't worry. So we're, we're in pretty good Oh, shape. yeah. You live in Brooks, Madison? I actually don't. I want, I like, I so badly for this telethon want to be in her riding, but I'm a few blocks south of um, the cutoff. And what people probably don't realize is that the Cypress Medicine Hat riding is where most of medicine hat like the majority of hatters live in cypress medicine hat because all of brooks is in the brooks medicine hat so it's just basically north of the river so so you you live in the riding she was campaigning i I live in the riding that she was canvassing in correct that's right yeah absolutely for those of us that for those of our listeners that didn't know that, um, among the many amazing things that Danielle Smith has done since she uh, announced this campaign, um, she door knocked. She was here for three days, I think, to door knock, and she spent the part of one event, anyways, uh, in the wrong riding. So, pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. Before we get going really further on her, though, let's say hi to Bridget. Bridget, how are hi. you today? I, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm know. so glad you could join us. Let's also say hi to Shama in the chat. Uh, she says hello, Alberta friends. Hi, hi Shama. Toronto friends. Hi, Shama. We miss you, hi, Shama. Yeah. Um, so, are you getting Jeremy as a neighbor soon? Is this what I'm told? Yeah, like I like literally my across the hall neighbor. Like an across the hall neighbor. Yeah. Do you want to talk after, and I'll just give you a couple of things you need to know going in. Yeah, that, that'd be helpful. Thanks. Yeah, I got you. Thanks. I got you. All right. Well, we won't like waste our hour talking about that, but Jeremy is moving to Edmonton soon. But we got kind of like a whole cross Alberta thing going on here today, right? So yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of neat. And uh, it's Alberta's got to be top of the news uh, wire for a lot of places right now with everything that's going on. And I live in Medicine Hat where Danielle Smith is trying to uh, gain a seat. Um, and you guys um, are dispersed across the big cities. So just from, can I ask you guys quick, like before, like from your guys' point of view, what is this? Have you been watching this race? Have you been paying attention to the Brooks Medicine Hat by-election? What are your thoughts going in? Because everybody sort of has an opinion. Ooh, Evan, you go. Um, yeah, I, I could kick us off. I have not been paying too much attention to the by-election besides for the incredible fuck up that she had of campaigning in the wrong riding which is great because obviously you know like many of us probably watching this stream you do a lot of door knocking the maps are pretty clear of what houses you have to hit and what houses you don't so someone printed the wrong map maybe but i don't think they care enough like you know i think she isn't treating this very seriously uh expects to win it handily and uh, you know, will really deliver for her constituents uh, once she gets in. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling kind of bad for the NDP candidate there because she was nominated not all that long ago. And I don't yeah. think she's, I mean, she's certainly not someone I'm familiar with as someone who lives outside the riding. But I, right. you know, I think about that kind of like uphill 
battle of, you know, she probably expected to have months of door knocking. That's Mm -hmm. a great point because I, I know for a fact that they sort of strategic and, and they, they very much waited until the Kenny review uh, was sort of out of the way. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. And then they announced Gwendolyn as their candidate. And of course they expected to have most of a year uh, to have her message out and whatnot. And if you're the NDP, if and when she doesn't win this by-election on November 8th, do you run her out again or do you have to switch candidates? Like, so is this like, that's what I find is sort of, um, I bet you Gwendolyn didn't see this coming and probably didn't want to be in a by-election this fast, but the NDP is pouring a lot of money and effort into it. Well, also, yeah, um, just, uh, in case our uh viewers aren't aware danielle smith lives in high river uh which is you know pretty close to medicine high it's uh three hours hours away (laughs) so um obviously she has deep roots um in the riding she's running in um she's very plugged in to the um issues affecting her constituents or um future constituents i guess um it's gonna be good i am interested though right because like michaela fry um who stepped aside after one term um to make way for uh danielle well i think she also said she wasn't gonna run for real so that's yeah so she had announced her intention to not run she's recently married she used to be michaela glasgow is now michaela fry uh i believe they want to have a family that kind of thing so i think she was going to turn her focus on that so we have absolutely no idea whether it had anything to do with this beforehand now when smith won obviously michaela was i mean i think we can all assume she was asked to step aside because she wasn't going to come back anyway um but it's important that we note that fry wasn't the only mla that's not going to come back right like she there are other other avenues that Smith had at her availability to run. She could have ran closer to home. Calgary Elbow is yeah, it was, yeah, that's it was already I mean, vacant, right? right? I don't it's have already an vacant. Yeah, because so Schweitzer uh, bounced. Right. So she um, wanted, she obviously is coming to Medicine Hat, Alberta, southeast forgotten corner of the uh of the province wonder where we got our podcast name which by the way we're a little bit pissed that she keeps like hijacking our podcast name for her political gains it's pissing us off but whatever so cease and desist we will have our lawyers uh, reach out to danielle but that or miss smith but that will happen um but nonetheless she thinks that she's going to slam dunk it here uh and and i think we can all i think if we were all to put our vote in we would suggest that she's gonna win not vote for her but we we would all suggest she's gonna win her her election here what i want to see is how what kind of support is she gonna get because so michaela fry who was the mla who was stepping down she won the riding with 61.6 percent how much under 61.6 do you guys think danielle smith winds up where it's a big deal. Like if she gets 55 or 50, how much of a loss is that for her and a gain for the NDP? I think, I think it tells you something, right? Cause you've got a, a provincial leader, you know, a high, high profile name. And so if they can't get at least the numbers that, um, 
you know, the previous previous candidate did. I, I think that doesn't bode well for their prospects across the province, especially when when Smith is talking about this rural strategy that she's doing, where she's done this thing. She's she's said she's basically giving up on the um, on the on the big cities. Like she's just abandoning the big cities. You know, not doesn't care about winning them. Doesn't care about campaigning in them. Like just has clearly indicated that she right. she can win without them and that she's not interested in the the voices of the two thirds of Albertans who live in cities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's openly said, right. Like I don't, whatever Calgary is, I can, you know, as long as I win like a few like deep South ridings and then sweep rural Alberta, I'm good. Um, which I mean, it's sort of saying the quiet part out loud, right? Like you're not supposed to write off, you know, the vast majority of the province um, based on like cold electoral calculations. But I mean, you know, that's what uh, makes Smith uh, unique. Um, I think as a leader is she, she uh, likes to say the quiet part out loud. And uh, of course that appeals to people because they're like, Oh, I, uh," you know, she tells it like it is, you know, she, uh, she's sincere. She says what she means, but um, yeah, I'll be, cause it's also interesting because, uh, of course, she's also running against uh, Alberta party leader Barry Morishida, who we've had on the podcast. Absolutely. Nice guy. Um, and he was the mayor of Brooks, right? Yep. And um, so it'll be interesting to see if he's able to, like, eat into some of her support. Again, I don't, like, there's, she's obvious, like, Smith is obviously going to win. Like, it's just, it will be interesting to see by how much. I think if I think if there's a way to get that under 50%, like if she win if she were to win this election but had 48%, 47%, that's a that's a seven-month gift to the NDP. Um so I think it's interesting to see what's gonna play out. But uh I think uh the, the point about Medicine Hat is is it's turning out that it might not be quite the slam dunk that she thinks it is. There's definitely some people that are rallying against her. So we'll see what happens. But I agree, I think she's gonna win. Um, but for the people that are listening, maybe across Canada, they're probably wondering the about the the Danielle terror train that we're talking about here today, as far as what she's gonna do after that, right? So um what do you think, Evan, as far as like um, what's next for like every day seems to be a new thing with her, right? Like the whole court, the, there was a court decision a couple days ago. Um, basically, courts decided that the Alberta government violated the Public Health Act by removing mask mandates with in K-12 schools. She makes a point the next day to make a statement that we're actually going to make a law so there'll never be a mandate again. So this is the kind of crazy that we've got going. Um, how, what have you made of sort of just her first few weeks of pre, as being premier? Well, she's done a phenomenal job. I think we can all agree on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, whether you agree with her or not. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, the word on everyone's lips is unity uh, from Fort McMurray to Drumheller. Um, but it's going to be this for a few months. Uh, I think she's running on a strategy of, uh, you know, completing uh, or creating complete chaos. There's going to be stunts every week, maybe every two weeks. Who's to say? Um, because I think the only way that Daniel Smith can win is to depress uh, NDP voter turnout as much as possible, make people as morose as they possibly can be. So I, and 
I also think that these kind of stunts like energize some people, right? Where they're like, ah, oh, the things that I see on Facebook, she's saying them in real life. And it like, I, I, I am proud of her for not being interested in governing. I think that's like a fantastic development because she does like, she's obviously not someone who cares about like service delivery or how to improve my ministries or like, oh, what's the best way to manage my caucus? She doesn't know any of that. She's a radio host. All she knows is maybe how to win. She's never done it before, but I think she's willing to try. So it's like she has grabbed onto a moving car. Her dog jaws are around it. And it's like, okay, uh, what's going to happen to the healthcare system? What's going to happen to education and the curriculum? What is she going to run on? So there's a lot of exciting questions. And I think the NDP, you know, could easily get stuck on, there's so much to respond to. What do you do? I think she wants to confuse the battlefield as much as possible, throw up so many unknowns that people don't know what to do because it's an exciting differentiation from Jason Kenney, maybe, where, you know, he's making decisions that are bad, but what if there were just stunts? What if there were just political pranks that she could yeah. play? So I, I think that's, I think that's going to be Danielle's strategy. And I think I think the NDP is making a big mistake if they take that for granted. Like, I think they're making the same mistake that, um, you know, you saw during the U.S. election with Trump, right, was there was this assumption that he was saying all this, you know, crazy stuff, that he was dangerous. And it just got him more and more attention. I think I think the NDP would be unwise to assume that the fact that she's constantly sticking her foot in her mouth is going to win them the election because she just she moves on to the next scandal so fast that you don't have a, a chance to react to the last one like it's boom boom it's almost daily and so it it just becomes a brush and it and she's you're right she's mobilizing a lot of non-voters i think with that sort of fringe group that are the the you know conspiracy theorist facebook voters a lot of those people are probably engaged in politics far more than they've been for a long time so she's she's figured out a way to tap into a previously pretty inactive voter pool. It, it's like shock and awe, but with insane things to say. Like, remember when Kenny was like, he actually used the word shock and awe. It was going to be this campaign of policy, right? And so when he became premier, he had this plan of we're going to write this law and this law and this law and this law. And it came at you so fast that you just were like, holy fuck, you couldn't, like, you couldn't focus on anything you couldn't and i wrote a column once telling the ndp to i use the baseball analogy as like stop swinging at every pitch right like you're basically like there every single policy that comes through you're like that's bad and that's bad and that's bad and you're there that shock and awe allows them to sort of overwhelm you and you get stuck on these one things danielle smith is that to a just a crazy level. It's not a boat policy, right? It's a shock and awe of like new stupid things to say. And it's becoming Trumpian in the sense that if you harp on every single dumb thing that she says, you start to be the one that looks like sort of the ass in the whole th game of it, because it's like, yeah, we get it. She says stupid shit. Of mm. course, those things that she said are stupid. And then you, uh, you get stuck on those things, right? I, I will first of all uh in the chat J Tub uh asks when we'll have Danielle on the Forgotten Corner pod. Um let, fucking let, James. Thanks, James. Uh, Hi James, by the way. I'm glad you're listening. Yeah, I would say uh <laughs> what's her availability like? Let's do it. Let's absolutely. make it happen. I think I mean we would blast. absolutely I, love to have her on the show. 
Um, I have a theory that uh, anyone that has any ties to the UCP or ever has had ties to UCP or ever will have had ties to the UCP has no intention of ever coming on. I I think she'd do it though. I think I feel like, like if anyone would come on our podcast, it would be her. All right. I'll tell you what, you're the woke mob. She's challenging the woke mob. You know, she's like, you're funded by the world economic forum. You have to admit it. And she's going to be there calling you out. That's actually true. I actually want to have her call me out on all the like WEF funding we get all the, the way that Trudeau pays my bills. I can't wait to actually have her on the show. Okay. So James, the answer to your question is, is whoever wins the election, the by-election on November 8th, we are going to have them on our show. And if they don't come on the show, they're a coward. Yeah. I, I was I I actually will this week reach out to her people and uh, see. Well, yeah, of course we'll reach out. Yeah, we should try to get uh, Drew Barnes on the show too, but that's another. Yeah, we should. I think you may have burned that bridge, but um, I don't know. He likes me. I think You're I don't know. I'm not blocked by Danielle Smith or anything like that. Like we've, I've never, you know, I've never called her a bad person publicly. You can call her a B or a C or an F. What's what what what's your favorite thing Danielle Smith has said so far? Like over the past, like I don't know, handful of months. What what what's your favorite Danielle Smith gaff? Wow, this is tough. I like. I don't know. I I think it was. The, I think it was the um the unvaxxed or the most discriminated people i've ever seen in my life um i just like that on so many levels because like i think that it's probably true which says a lot about her like that that that. she like that she sincerely believes that Uh, absolutely and that i believe that she in her sort of tunnel vision view of the world around her i believe she believes she's never witnessed a minority face discrimination like she's never witnessed a member of the lgbtq community be discriminated against she's never witnessed she, she does have a, a non-binary of, a relative color being though. witnessed uh discriminated against so yeah she believes it because i think it's probably fairly true it speaks to her circle like who she is as a person so i don't know that's my favorite bridget i mean yeah, I mean, if you look at her media diet that we've heard about so far, I, I think she's a true believer. I don't know. I It's not my favorite. Um, it's not my favorite thing, but um, I uh, the cancer one really got me. And it, and it got me because it was like just after my dad had died in the hospital of cancer this summer and like horrifying circumstances, largely because of the UCP's like absolute undermining of our healthcare system, right? And the fact that she's blaming that on, on healthcare workers just really bothered me. But the, the whole victim blaming of cancer patients, I think really, um, that really got me. It was both the victim blaming and the realization that she really thinks naturopaths are real doctors. Um, and just, just her, just that whole conversation there, right. That, that she's just, just, it, it, it was this first glimpse into, in some ways into that reality that she actually believes this stuff she's not just saying it to to get votes like i think she really is that far down the rabbit hole like i i wouldn't be shocked if she said something about QAnon tomorrow like that's how far gone she seems to be that would be amazing i, I would, think she's uh, basically said the same things she just hasn't 
connected the full dot yet. She doesn't really talk about pedophiles much, which is disappointing. Um, not but yet. I, not yet. The, the groomer discourse is coming. I guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But it was interesting in the in the the Rebel News, um, the Alberta Prosperity Project debate. She like was pushed back against the like transphobic um, uh, line of questioning. Was like, well, and this is so typical of Danielle Smith and and, and just this right wing mindset where it's like, well, actually, I have a relative who's non-binary, so I think they're fine. Um, right, because it like affects her personally. But I, I, I also like the uh, cancer is a choice remark because I think it like perfectly like uh, distills this like right wing libertarian mindset where everything is just personal responsibility. And um, yeah, I mean, it's your choice. Like, didn't work hard enough. Sorry, didn't didn't see a naturopath. Like, it's your own fault. Um, and, um, that's why I, and I, I mean, it's just, I mean, when, in the way she like, wouldn't apologize for it. Right. And, and it, it reminded me of Trump a lot where all her opponents within the UCP and, you know, outside of it were just circling the wagons. Uh, I don't know if I use circling. The I wagons, can't, but... I can't fucking stand people wanting apologies out of these people for things. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That makes like, me I, more I... mad than the fact that they don't apologize. The fact that people want them to apologize. They're not like, yeah. And she was just like, no, you misinterpreted me. That's not what I said. Of course. That's what and, she's going to say. And yeah. And I, I said, I've said this before, like, demanding she apologize for every stupid thing she says isn't an electoral fucking dumb how many times does Kenny apologize in three years none yeah like he he i know for for like the best summer ever he was like i'm sorry if um you know you misunderstood what i was trying to do it was like (laughs) sorry if you were offended by having a great summer cracking open a brew and lighting up the barbecue with your boys um like the two daniel smith statements that were brought up are excellent um i really liked the recent one about we're human beings not qr codes oh that's good oh that 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 is a good one yeah because that appeals to like this many people um and they're all like in the US or like QAnon people, like, or people mad at the airport and they can't open their phone. Like, those are the only people that that message applies to. And I, I like the upping of the stakes of Danielle Smith because it's like she's not running against Rachel Notley, she's running against the globalists. And hopefully soon she'll be running against Joe Biden. Like, I want her to say, let's go, Brandon. I want her to say, uh, we're here for the great reawakening. Uh, like, I want her to say, like, I have just received information that Rachel Notley will be arrested. Like, or she's been replaced by a body double. Like, I I want that so badly. And like the whole groomer thing, I, I was fascinated by that. I'm surprised she, you know, was like, I actually think trans people might be okay because I know a non-binary person. Because um, like, the greatest risk for her is really sticking her shoe in it on the social issues where it's like, granted, she said stuff about cancer, which everyone was offended by. But as soon as they get to like the the homophobia and the transphobia, like, what will she do? Will she allow her caucus members to say this? Is she going to say like woke school boards are indoctrinating your children to be gay, which I'm sure she will say that at some point. 
Like, I, I think it's going to provide an interesting challenge. My for school her. board um, made me gay. Well, you know, though, if Same. you go, if you go back yeah. to what the Huntsberger era, right, the Lake of Fire in, you know, before Daniel Smith blew herself up the first or the second time in her political career. Um, first time was school board, right? Yeah, first time was school board. The second whole board time got was, fired. Yeah. Give us a hat trick, Danielle. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> she's she, trying, but you, he's you, undefeated. You go back to that, um, you go back to that Huntsberger era. Like she, she managed that and she basically said to her, you know, said to the public, um, I don't agree with him, but I, I stand by him being able to say that stuff. And I think that's yeah. what you'll see, right? It, what you'll see is, you know, other people on her team saying those things. That's how, how she's always managed it. She's let mostly let the other people say that, that social conservative stuff. She clearly backs it up if you look at the kind of stuff that she's written over the years, but, but she lets other people say it. And then she just, she turns it into a free speech or a conscience rights argument, right? Rather than She's libertarian, so content. it's all about being free, right? You got well, to be able to do. She says she's a libertarian, wow. uh, you know. But but you get that. So what you get is, is so I think what we're going to see with with trans issues is, you know, she won't have an issue with her family member, but when it comes to trans folks working in schools or outing kids or um, even the funding of surgeries, you're going to see that clawed back, yeah. right? Hundred percent. Um, how long is that speech that we were thinking about looking at? It's only like five minutes. Let's watch it. Let's do yeah, that. Marino, uh, pull it up Marino. And then we can talk about some of the resolutions that were passed and not passed so, at the. Yeah. So we're just going to have a look at Danielle Smith's speech from the United Conservative Party AGM, which took place not this past week, not this weekend, but last weekend. weekend yeah. On weekend, uh, weekend. like, yeah, last weekend. Yes, they heard the NDP were having a convention and were like, us too. This is movies to me. I'm excited to watch it. It's going to be amazing. All right, here we go. Okay, we're trying again, folks. Whether it's fuel, electricity, groceries, or fertilizer for our farmers, the cost of everything we need to live and to raise our families is soared. As a government, we can't solve this inflation crisis on our own, but we can certainly keep our books balanced And we can ensure that Albertans and their families are better able to manage through this storm. So over the coming weeks and months, you'll see our government take decisive action in this regard to ensure that families are not obliged to choose between power for their homes in winter or the nutritional food for their families. We will lower the cost of electricity. Sounds like... (laughs) Wait, what? Nationalized electricity income. so how are they going to lower the cost of electricity? Are they going to put a cap back on it? Yeah, but that's a, that that's very not libertarian to me. <laughs> I think I think you're going to see more sending people out checks, right? Um, yeah, which yeah. is really interesting. Along with that, we're going to keep our books balanced piece because you know this sort of austerity stuff doesn't work when you're trying to stabilize people through a crisis, right? So- so we used to have capped electricity. Then Kenny lifted the cap on electricity. So then we're going to give checks to people to deal with the fact that our electricity is too much. That's what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, we just saw that like getting whatever 50 bucks a month or whatever off our power bills for six months. Like we're saved. Ooh. All right. To ease the financial burden for seniors and vulnerable Albertans, our government will ensure that they have more in their wallets right away to meet the rising cost of life's necessities. 
To restore affordability to daily life during a time when budgets are being stretched beyond limits, our government will look to removing the provincial fuel tax and ensure that gas stations lower their prices appropriately when we do. Okay, so pause that for a second. Okay, first of all, the gas tax was removed. There's only 30% of the gas tax currently being charged at the pumps. So that's important. So there, four and a half cents is the entire gas tax she's talking about right now. It's 4.5 cents and it's only been back for a month. And when they took the 13 cents gas taxes off, uh, obviously the gas went down for a day or two and then it went back up. She's suggesting that they are going to somehow make sure that private companies don't raise their prices. So um, how is she going to uh, force businesses to adhere to a price cap? And it doesn't it doesn't help anybody who can't afford to buy fuel, you know, four and a half cents a or whatever, 13 cents a liter. If you if you can't afford to put 50 bucks worth of fuel in your tank, doesn't matter anyways. But like, like, a lot of people don't even have a car. She's literally admitting what we all said when the gas tax was removed, that no company is going to just let that 13 cents be like they're not going to lower their. And she's admitting that that didn't happen. That Well, if you look at actually what happened, like it wasn't even that that companies started charging that money more. If you look across the country, like it was just, you know, the pricing increases in fuel just ate that up so fast that it didn't matter anyways. Like, yeah. Okay. It, Sorry, Marie, like, I don't know how you manage that with, with global oil prices constantly fluctuating, how you, well, she's how you monitor saying, it, how you check for that. Like, how do you, how do you like, even... well, the first step is getting rid of uh, any ties to the world economic forum. Oh, right. Thank you. Thank you. They control global oil, global oil prices. I'm led to believe. Yeah. So I think strategic called the world strikes, economic forum. Hello. How do you think already, she would, how do you think she would react to an opposition, like an opponent saying they're going to force private companies to keep their prices down? You know exactly that's she, how that's she's she reacted to things like that. Most of those managing AHS today are holdovers from the NDP years. They have had their chance to fix this bloated system. (laughs) They're also holdovers from the PCs. They have failed on almost all accounts. (laughs) Failure is no longer an option. So working with Minister Jason Copping, finally someone says frontline services, we will make the substantive changes that need to be made without delay. How How many times now have people gone in, like PCs, NDP, everybody gone in and like cleaned house at the top of AHS, reorganized it or whatever. And somehow it's Every not cycle. fixing the problem. It's, you know, maybe the problem isn't that you need to change the execs. Well, but I think that like we've, we often see governments change and obviously certain at the top level bureaucrats are, are changed over. Um, I think a lot of governments leave in so so a lot of the bureaucrats at AHS were left in place after the PCs when the NDP came in and the UCP just sort of like this is what I find so fucked up is that Kenny I thought was going to be the most insane thing that's ever happened to a Canadian province like he was going to be just the worst premier and he was but some of these things like he didn't go like full insane right like he didn't go and so like he actually didn't just 
clean house at AHS. But, but you can't Just like even... Notley didn't clean house at AHS. Well, you can't clean house at AHS other well, than firing the, the CEO. Like you can't, right. because it's you an can. arm's length body. Right. You can you can change the board and you can fire the head, but the the other management level people that's the administrative side of it. You've created an arm's length body. You can't just walk into AHS and start firing people. It's not like it any more than you can walk in. She could walk into the hospital and start firing nurses. Just it's almost like some of the things she's saying are just theatrical. What? <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> Lies. There can be Go no ahead, doubt that the current NDP Liberal Alliance is just the latest in a long line of Ottawa governments that have frustrated the legitimate aspirations of hardworking Albertans. That stops now. When Ottawa announces policies, and she's laws ending the coalition government, the quote-unquote coalition people, government. Or when Ottawa seeks to take yeah, control just of our right now. sovereign areas of provincial jurisdiction. Okay, so the one piece to see- listen to in here is it's always Ottawa. It's never the federal government. It's never the government of Canada. It is always Ottawa, 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 Ottawa. Like she, always it's Ottawa that we're fighting. And it's, yeah, it's a really important rhetorical choice. Those laws and policies in this province, period. I think we could kick Ottawa's ass if you ask me. Let me be very it's clear. On. I will never, ever apologize for standing up for the people of Alberta and the province that yes. I serve. Thank yes. you, Queen. Oh, my God. Thank, thank you. Thank somebody. No more apologies. So, Someone to finally stand up for Alberta. has already begun on crafting it. We worked on it earlier this week at the caucus retreat. We still have further work to do, but I've asked. That was when they went paintballing, right? I take my seat in the legislature. We will then she got the best paintball gun it, in the history of paintball guns Ottawa and gave her entire caucus like a fucking slingshot out of line and intrude on our constitution to exert rights. dominance. Alberta will no longer ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. Pause. Okay. <laughs> I one thing I love when uh specifically like Canadian conservatives talk about the constitution and they're like they're taking away our constitutional rights and it's like yes we technically have a constitution it's not called the constitution it's correct a, 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 it's a couple of documents you know living breathing documents but they're they always have this like americanized way of talking about it where it's like you know, we have our fundamental freedoms that Ottawa is always gunning for. And yeah, I love this. I can't wait until, you know, the walls on all of our uh, borders are built up. And sorry, one other quick point. Go ahead. I love when she talks about um, breaking up the coalition of the NDP uh, and the Liberals. And I always think about Two Towers, you know, great uh, Lord of the Rings movie. The union of the Two Towers, Baradur and Orthanc. So uh Jagmeet Singh is on one of them Justin Trudeau's on one of them maybe Rachel Notley's on one of them and that stops now okay the you know the coalition's basically over it's done yeah they're finished she's gonna go and knock some heads together it's amazing we love this province and all it stands for we won't sit by and allow socialist NDP policies. To okay, stop, 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 stop. Finally, socialism. What? Can we pl- yes, okay. Socialism. I'm so glad that we're all able to back a socialist NDP, aren't you? That oh yeah, I'll be I'll be glad to see it. Anytime now. A malice. socialism. I fucking hate how they threaten us with a good time all the time, and I just like what a world that would be. NDP that actually did socialism. 
it's like it's like what a great reset oh awful that would suck i'd hate a great reset no no don't destroy capitalism yeah oh no oh no please don't don't turn me into a qr code (laughs) (laughs) i just like it one thing i find about the conservative vote like she a lot of the stuff she's seeing is regurgitated talking points that other conservatives have said before her including kenny right like everyone that ever like it's like i'm no no i'm gonna stand up to ottawa no no the last guy didn't but i'm gonna it's it's not even just just a conservative thing like rachel notley did it too like it's it's the alberta premier drum that they always bang because they know that it gets people worked up it's just so f- insane. Like, anyway, go ahead. Pause. Unpause. We can't. We can't cooperate with so tirelessly to build. Our Alberta is one of the most prosperous places on earth. One of the great bastions of freedom and liberty anywhere, where people come so from. Yeah, no, absolutely. Only free. You're only dreams. free in this Canada or the United for. States no or 172 other sovereign nations. If you are in Alberta. Or the woke Twitter mob throw at us. If we stay oh, united, she's talking about us. the strength and values of Manning and Lawheed and Klein, we will inevitably prevail. So Pause. join with me. Lawheed would kill work. himself if up. you fucking told him he was in the same category as Preston Manning. He'd he'd fucking jump off the Calgary Tower and slit his throat on the way down. Okay, go ahead. Burton's where's Allison Redford where's Estelle resoundingly in 2023 and let's make sure Alberta always remains strong and free oh fuck I, I miss jobs economy pipeline you guys you know this this well that's gonna be the NDP slogan <laughs> uh, yeah it will be well the the woke line is getting really really wild because I, I I don't think oh. it was in this clip, but earlier in the speech, because the full thing's a bit longer, she talks about the woke carbon tax. The carbon <laughs> taxes are woke, guys. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was my get, favorite. Get too. woke. Get woke, charge some taxes. The carbon oh, tax that's, is that's asking that's us to listen to really voices wants. of color. <laughs> oh, shit. Feminist, feminist carbon taxes. So I guess when in the time that we have left, Here's my question, and we'll see if this comes into a conversation. It might be bad for Alberta if she wins this by-election and gets to have this time to go off and do her thing. Short-term-wise, is it is there any idea, like any thought to the idea that it's maybe the best thing that could happen to us long-term? Like, how fucking nuts do we need to get to convince Albertans that, like, maybe this is like not the way? to do things so like could long-term benefits come from danielle smith being a goddamn wackadoo I guess are you an accelerationist question. now scott well i'm a nihilist if it you know <laughs> i think there's uh i think there's some truth to uh letting your enemies be in charge during very bad times and these right, are right, very right. bad times for alberta right now so that's one thing um and like i it's it's so frustrating right because i i know these like processes take like decades but i want to see people more and more radicalized and like asking more from their government and i feel like we're on the right track like 
Prentice, I feel like when when he was talking about, oh, look in the mirror and everything, people were like, oh my goodness, I feel offended by one of my political leaders for the first time in a long time. I haven't had to care about these things. So I feel like we're we're on the right track, if if I can be accelerationist for a little while, to getting people more and more uncomfortable with the provincial government, wondering why you know, they're not doing more, why life is getting worse and they don't care. So, and it's all about sort of who answers that, uh, that frustration and that angst and uh, talking about like, you know, the organized labor movement in this province or the NDP, like some room for improvement. I'll say that some good moments, some good moments, but a lot of room for improvement. Um, But I think that things are good when someone like uh, Danielle Smith is there but things could also be very, very bad. Uh, if the economy improves overnight uh, and then she can just sort of say whatever she wants uh, and then the NDP get less and less room to stand on, that's a difficult place to be in uh, because then she can just, you know, throw throw red meat to the, you know, the Facebook people and, you know, maybe she can just get away with it. So I'm just going to bring up here, though, like we, these approaches always throw a lot of people under the bus. Um, you know, like like allowing bad governments to happen until the supposed good government comes in and saves us. I mean, first of all, it's this kind of like someone's going to rescue us narrative that we can get into a lot. Um, and, I, and I worry about like, you know, who gets hurt in these things, right? It's LGBTQ folks, you know, uh, it's uh, Indigenous people, it's people of color, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of people. Um, so I don't know. I just, I just think like, let's stop expecting government to do it for us. Let's just like help our communities ourselves because that's the only way people are going to get through yeah i mean i agree with that like it's obviously like we're the most likely to be unscathed during a terror train right and so it's it is the minorities um and the marginalized people and the vulnerable people that Mm -hmm. end up getting fucked in that scenario and uh i mean when the world's like giving a fuck you to covid she's taking that to a new level right she's she's become like the it doesn't exist kind of thing and there's a lot of people that are probably going to suffer during that time so um it's it's fun to make light of her it's fun it's fun to make fun of it and it's it, it is fun sometimes to talk about sort of the entertainment value of what the next seven months is, might be like because or four years and seven months who knows how the fuck long she she sticks around for but it is it is important to note that dangerous governments um really harm um, a lot of people and uh, there are a lot of Albertans that are sort of in the crosshairs of that and will be left in the wake of her shit so I, I, we fe- we do feel terrible for them as much as we like to sort of make fun of it all yeah and you know to, to add <laughs> another dark note to this a lot of this can't be fixed right I, I think people have the sort of understanding of electoral politics where it's like one party does bad things and then the NDP can get in and fix it all. People are dying from this pandemic. The hospitals are full. So, you know, we live with a provincial government that likes to say, you know, no more masks in the schools, you know, everything's fine. There will never be a mask again in the school. Oh, booster shots. I don't care. You know, there's not going to be any public health messaging. It's we're just going to pretend it's gone. It doesn't matter. You know, if your family member is sick and dying, it's not happening to Danielle Smith. So it's not real. But if she has a family member who gets sick, maybe speaking to the transphobia thing, maybe she'll realize that COVID might exist. 
Maybe we so, have to do something. So before we go, we did ask AHS this week from the, we being the Medicine Hat News, uh, the daily newspaper in the forgotten corner here. We asked AHS this week, sort of why did they, um, like, it was a little bit coincidental that it was right when Daniel Smith came in, they stopped reporting by municipalities. You couldn't find out by city how many cases there were. Obviously it wasn't, but the plan was, and as they said, was to treat it like other Mm -hmm. endemic type things like the influenza and uh it's important to note that if we had um it would take about 55 years for uh influenza deaths to reach what covid deaths in alberta have been since the start of the pandemic we usually somewhere between about 40 and 80 is the uh number of influenza deaths in an alberta flu season and uh, we topped 5,000 deaths in Alberta from COVID last week. So uh, we're going to treat them like the exact same thing for from now on. So, yeah, good fucking times. Um, before we get out of here, sorry, that's a shitbag dark note to end on. Thanks a lot, Evan. Um, uh, before we get out of here, Evan, uh, tell us a little bit about Kino Lefter. Let folks know how they can listen to you and where they can find you. Yes, uh, I am the host of the Kino Lefter podcast, a socialist film podcast talking about the movies. Um, At midnight tonight, Mountain Time, uh, the Kino Lefter Halloween special will be released. Uh, It's a commentary track for patrons only of the Matt Walsh transphobia documentary, What is a Woman? So uh, I watched that. And if you want to simulate watching that movie with me, you can do that. So it was, uh, I had fun. It's a terrible film, um, but it's, you know, <laughs> I try trying to strike that balance of, Oh my God, I'm, I'm looking at pure evil. There's a couple things we could laugh about, but it's, I mean, these people are very silly and also evil. So, uh, patreon.com forward slash Kino Lefter to find out more. Also, um, we haven't said this yet, but you should uh, support Harbinger uh, Media Network. Uh, sign up, become a member, support this great community of uh, but also give money to the forgotten podcasts. corner, and also, of course, give money to the forgotten corner. Give money to my subs. <laughs> like, just give, <laughs> just give us know. whatever Throw you have left after an inflation inflation has taken you apart. After Trudeau has gouged your pockets, and uh, who else is taking all your money? Once you're done with that, if you don't mind just giving us what you have left, we're actually desperate. Yeah, please. Please, yeah. Uh, Bridget, what are you doing these days? Where can people find you? To give us give us your social media deets uh, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, find me in a journal article database near you. Um, working on my PhD, uh, you know, enjoying life post-politics. Um, if you want, you can come find me yelling at people on Twitter, uh, at Bridget Sterling. Um yeah, or if you want to see pictures, or if you want to see pictures of all the food I make and my cat and sometimes my trips, you can find me on Instagram. Yeah. I, I don't yell at people on Instagram, so if you want, if you want sunshiny Bridget, you can go over there. I've never met her, but I'm excited to know yeah. that she exists. Yeah, well, you you keep asking me about really terrible things. <laughs> we always so have like... you on the show to ask about bullshit things that are happening. So, uh, Jeremy, tell people about your Substack. Uh, it's called The Orchard. Uh, you can read it at theorchard.substack.com. Recently, I uh, did a deep dive into uh, d- the dark world of uh, Danielle Smith's 
uh, patrons only uh, AMAs on her locals.com website, um, which is a website uh, that was founded by a guy uh, near and dear to our hearts, uh, Dave Rubin. <laughs> nice. All right, guys, yeah. we're, we're out of and, time. Uh, we've got to let everybody else, we've got to let the last hour start. But watch the, listen to the Forgotten Corner, donate to the Forgotten Corner, support the Medicine News. Love you guys. Greetings, contaminers. My name is Gold Commander of the Community Industry Response Group of the RCMP, and we've intercepted this broadcast because our prime database has identified a large congregation of subservient individuals. I'm here to announce the creation of the new RCMP Cyber Elite Division. Barnesworth has just signed off. Just like CERB, we have no budget. And to be frank, we're watching you all through your cameras right now. Anyway, as a part of our community liaison, we've brought in a completely impartial journalist to help explain some of our current activities. Let's come sit right here. Uh, Welcome back to BC News Tonight. Uh, I'm proud to be joined by a very special guest, the um, gold commander of the RCMP's Community Industry Response Group. Yeah, I'm right. Uh, sir, uh, do I call you um, Mr. Commander um, Gold? Uh, Mr. Commander was my father. You could just call me Gold Commander. Uh, understood. Okay. And I just read questions off of this, this sheet of paper. Okay. Okay. Um, well, um, question number one, uh, why is the Community Industry Response Group so vital to public safety uh, here in the Northwest? Well, the thing is, if you didn't have the police, we wouldn't be making money. My pension is tied up with coastal gasoline, TMX, all of these big industries. And you know, the, sane, the sanest investment you can make is one that you can ensure the certainty yourself out on the land. So that's how I, as the gold commander, think. Very good. Um, uh, people are very concerned about uh, uh, terrorist activity and um, uh, extremists uh, intimidating private property and um, committing torts against uh, heavy equipment. Why haven't you arrested more violent extremists? That is a great question that I wish media would ask a whole lot more. See, this man, he's not about all that fake news. The truth is, it's wild west out here. You got indigenouses, you got all these different factions trying to say, oh, we never ceded our rights to the land. Oh, you know, what you're doing is a crime against humanity in Canada as... Absolutely no jurisdiction to railroad uh, what's the underpinning issue of the Canadian fabric of society. But, you know, forget all that. There's bad guys and then there's us. And we're here to make sure that you can all go home and enjoy all the benefits of living in a nice, safe and unproblematic colony. 
Um, recently, the Vancouver Police Union endorsed uh, Mayor Ken Sim and seven uh, council candidates. Um, do you think it's time for police to become more involved in selecting our political leaders? That's what I've been saying all along. You know, we wouldn't have half the problems right now if we had cops in charge. You know, I really approve of that fear-based programming. I mean, the democratic process that we've seen happening down south. You know, in fact, I was just about to endorse EB myself, but then the NDP took care of it in-house. So that's all good. Sir, I have um, I have soiled myself quite badly. Um, do you think we could take a commercial break? I think you did good. Everybody, you heard nothing but the truth here tonight on the Gold Commander's, uh, you know, first ever operation of the Cyber Crimes Division. Now, as a part of what we're doing tonight, I have to quickly read you this injunction that we recently had developed by our guys at HQ. So you all must stay at least 10 meters away from any subversive thoughts that might undermine our, our activities and our lawful authority anywhere in this province or this country. So keep that in mind and we'll be watching. Are we clear, Marina? Can we get all I need to change. All right, we're back. Hey, Janelle, how you doing? Doing well. That was some scary stuff. Caught me in the Halloween spirit for sure. Yeah, there's a glitch in the system. I'm not sure what happened. Things just cut out. <laughs> we're, so we're back. I'm kind of gotta call in Sutherland Wilson, and we're joined by uh, our friend Janelle Lapointe. Janelle, are you down in um, in uh, MST Musqueam Squamish Slavotip territory? Yes, I am. I'm here enjoying the rainy season finally. Do you um do you want to do a little intro for folks? Just um maybe um drop your Twitter handle and talk about some of the work you've been doing uh down south. Yeah, sure. Uh Janella Points, Hello everyone. My name is Janella Point. I'm from Salapen First Nation, which is in the northern interior of BC, but I have been down here on these beautiful territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people for the last four years. And yeah, I've been doing um, Indigenous rights and climate organizing in a variety of capacities. Um, my day job is at the David Suzuki Foundation, supporting some youth environmental groups. Um, but I'm always doing grassroots work to um, hopefully create a, a mass movement of working people who want to uh, get uh, some Green New Deal policies that are rooted in Indigenous sovereignty, but still addressing the crisis at speed and scale. That sounds nice. Uh, trying to get our governments to stop killing people and the planet. That would be cool. Uh, yeah, that would be cool. Um, well, we we were hoping that, um, that you could tell us a, a horror story. Uh, we're doing some horror stories from the West Coast. Is there is there one that you had in mind that you wanted to dig into? Yeah, I'm going to tell you about uh, my October because I think that has been one big horror story. Um, so yeah, happy Halloween to all those that are celebrating. I I think this right here is about the extent of my celebrations, and that's because I think I've had enough of scares this October. Starting with just the, the unusual weather patterns, the severe drought that we experienced um, here in BC, that of course um, was putting some communities on their emergency water supplies. It was drying up 
spawning streams and of course really hurting an entire ecosystem especially the ones found here on MSP lands that are used to getting a lot of water and then on top of that we have coastal gas link trying to drill under a, a river that has um, all five species of, of salmon um, spawning during the fall. Uh, so the ghosts and ghouls were, were definitely out early this year. And unfortunately, some of them um, found some seats in office um, for a variety of levels of colonial governments. So thought I would shine a light on, on some of the scary and dysfunction of, of those colonial politics that we experienced in the fall. Um, yeah, starting with here in Vancouver, we witnessed a cop takeover of City Hall with uh, ABC Vancouver's um, Ken Sims party, taking the seat as mayor, taking the majority seats on council and school board and the uh, park board. They ran a campaign promising 100 mental health nurses, which I mean, sounds great, but is a nursing designation that does not exist. And then 100 new police officers that I'm sure are planning on doubling down on the Vancouver Police Department's goal of wasting millions of taxpayer dollars, um, instigating at Indigenous-led protests. Like once I saw these guys, like dozens of them just spending their day circling the now torn down Gassy Jack statue in Gastown. Um, I'm guessing they're going to be wanting to attend and take some selfies at some of those convoy and anti-vax protests that happen regularly in Vancouver. And of course, continue to harass and assault and displace our houseless neighbors and friends. And unsurprisingly, this pro-cop party also received an endorsement from the Vancouver Police Union. Like I said, lots of scary stuff. Um, a police That's system. new, right? Like they've never jumped into politics before, if I'm right. Yeah, brand new, um, timely, <laughs> with the rise of fascism happening worldwide and even here in Canada. Um, they get to pretend that they're a labor association when they're really an armed special interest group that continues to even, you know, they go to picket lines to arrest people and to harass people and they're more interested in protecting the state and property instead of people, especially um, when it comes to poor and working class people. And so, yeah, that new new thing of them stepping into politics and meddling in what's supposed to be a democratic process um, wasn't even like a huge news story, definitely not nationally, picked up a short media storm here in Vancouver, but um, they got away with it and they got what they wanted, which was a city council that will happily keep handing them over millions of dollars and that are happily stoking class division here in Vancouver. It's ideal for them to have, you know, a city that's really desensitized to the violence and excessive force that are used against poor people and, and to have a council that wants to have policies that continue to criminalize poverty. Um, so that's that one. And just when I thought I had recovered from the whiplash of having a cop select our mayor and council, I got to say uh, the BCNDP make Halloween just a little bit scary this year uh, by openly undermining democracy by 
orchestrating a disqualification of, of Angelia Potteri from the leadership race. And yeah, prior to the, the deadline of the sign-up, we had David Eby quoted as being frustrated with another candidate entering the race and didn't really seem like he was taking it that seriously other than being openly annoyed that it was happening. And I'm like, well, yeah, why would he take it seriously when his predecessor, John Horgan, like to treat anyone that cared about the environment or the climate or Indigenous rights as like some extreme fringe group um, that was just there to get under his skin and shouldn't be taken seriously. Um, so, yeah, despite having the backing of the entire NDP MLA caucus, uh, he got out organized by a grassroots campaign um, that was rumored to sign up tens of thousands of new members. And so the establishment got spooked and they orchestrated disqualification. It involved them changing the election rules in the middle of the race. It um, had them calling and interrogating new members based on who they voted for in the past, including myself. And still from getting that phone call, I don't know how they would have determined whether I was eligible or not. Um, and then having their chief electoral officer, Elizabeth Cole, who's a corporate uh, lobbyist, be the one that submits the report to disqualify her, which was filled with a report that had really no transparency into how she was reaching her conclusions or pulling some of the numbers she was using. Um, and of course, a lot of grasping at straws. So yeah, the horror story on Halloween Eve is about how cops and corporate lobbyists continue to meddle in our elections. And I feel like the only Halloween decorations I would have wanted this year are some big old tombstones and coffins that say rest in peace to democracy on it. Um, but yeah, despite all that political horror, I'm like very grateful and inspired by all the people that are organizing outside of those institutions or in face of the institutions, so like all the people that are fired up and angry, but not allowing it to disillusion them or allow them to become hopeless. And me, myself, like I'm pissed, but I'm not going to allow it to, to disengage me, especially knowing that there are Indigenous peoples on these lands that have their own governance structures that put the health and well-being of people on the planet. We have such strong nations and what we call BC. Um, so my urge to everybody would be to let these scary stories remind you of your own stake in Indigenous sovereignty and, and to learn about the governance structures that predate this whole colonial mess. And of course, like uplifting um, the Lula da Silva win in Brazil today, um, let us celebrate that tonight and um, remind us of what Indigenous people and working class people organizing in, in the face of fascism can bring us. And um, yeah, remember to stay united and strategic and, and hopeful. Right on. Thanks, Janelle. Um, I was wondering, Colin, could you tell us a little bit about the new uh, premier? David Eby and what he's been up to for the last uh, few years as uh, the Crown's top lawyer in BC? Yeah, yeah, I, I'll i definitely jump into that, but I, I just really wanted to comment quickly on what Janelle was saying, because, yeah, that's a worrisome trend, everything you described, this, you know, this this type of 
a democratic process which is you know revolves around this idea of oh it's not society that's the issue it's these minority groups whether it be the homeless or whether it be the indigenous people or whether it be protesters and yeah i think that's that's a discourse i really would love to see us get away from that's why i was definitely you know rooting for for a potterai there because you know as an indigenous person like like what choice do i have like like who actually represents any of any of my family's interests when it comes to the big picture like you know 97% of my village voted ndp 97% and what did the ndp do they just turned around and immediately trampled all over everything that we've been fighting for for years you know alongside the Wet'suwet'en so it's you know i you know i still even just the fight people put up you know to support anjali and to like you know shake that system to the point where they you know got afraid to the point where they may have very well made some mistakes that we can hit them hard on you know there there's a, there's always some hope there just people movement power but ebi ebi he's a greasy son of a gun because you know what's been happening on wet'suwet'en territory is you know it's an absolute crime it's it's a crime against humanity and and I, I think people kind of become desensitized to that when they start thinking of it in terms of the narrative that the BCNDP are putting out that oh this is just a divided people this is a people with all their own internal problems and oh look we got a handful of uh people who support it and you know then they amplify those voices and meanwhile you could have all the people marching in the streets all the people on the territories putting their bodies on the line and you know that that doesn't get factored into their equation like it's it's almost blatant and so the criminalization of the Wet'suwet'en people has been awful and we're seeing that ramp up even more you know i i just recently saw maybe kai can actually elaborate a bit on this but this designation of you know uh railroad blockaders and indigenous people who actually create blockades where we're now being uh designated within these these databases as as ideologically motivated violent extremists that's it right so that was the story that came out this week um cbc's brett forrester got an atip um from from itac sorry that's like three acronyms in a row so he did an access to info request with the integrated terrorism assessment center and they prepare reports for politicians and bureaucrats right like they um create these like terrorism alert briefings so that lawmakers um, can be secretly briefed on threats to national security. And they asked CSIS whether they could apply the term domestic terrorist to what's owed in solidarity blockades. And, you know, without um, incriminating anyone, uh, a lot of us were involved in what's owed in solidarity efforts uh, during that exact time, the beginning of 2021. And at that time, behind the scenes, ITAC was briefing politicians and saying, okay, this doesn't rise to the level of domestic terrorism yet, but these are ideologically motivated violent extremists. And they were giving the impression to federal lawmakers that people were like on the brink of going Al-Qaeda, basically. Um, and I think it's worth it's worth digging into how uh, the rhetoric of the war on terror is being brought home, uh, not just to like, quote unquote, Canada, but specifically to Wet'suwet'en and Gixan territories where the Supreme Court has more clearly than almost anywhere else articulated uh, the fact that that 
title and rights are still in effect, that basically the crown has no claim to this land. And it is here in, in Gixan and Wet'suwet'en territory where the, the feds are trying to use basic like national security frameworks to override indigenous sovereignty and, and place this resistance in the frame of terrorism, essentially, which justifies almost any possible response from police and prosecutors. And so it doesn't seem like they've managed to convince the top bureaucrats at CSIS yet to apply this designation. But the fact that that conversation is underway, I think is horrifying. That's a that's a Halloween story in and of itself, because um, as soon as you start applying that sort of framework of national security to uh, Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous resistance, um, we're through the looking glass. And basically, they can justify any amount of uh, surveillance, disruption, um, or in other words, genocidal tactics in service of quote unquote national security. So yeah, that was that was a hugely disturbing story that came out this week. And all that happened, you know, yeah. under these like so-called progressives, right? We've got like a liberal government in Ottawa and we've got a NDP government in Victoria. And the war on terror is like grinding along in secret, um, you know, way up the snowy forest service road outside of cell service. Uh, and it's no longer like, um, quote unquote, uh, Islamic extremists or Daesh or ISIL. It's, uh, it's like they're living indigenously uh, who are living according to their own laws and who are standing up for um, the Wet'suwet'en who are getting um, their land stolen at gunpoint through injunctions and, and armed RCMP raids. And peaceful protest in response is now being um, ramped up the the sort of um, terrorism scale. And I find the whole thing, yeah, extremely, extremely disturbing. Um, maybe I should just jump in and, and quickly explain the, the fellow who, who hacked the uh, the stream earlier. That's uh, mm. a satirical character that myself as a serial contender from multiple blockades actually came up with just to, you know, find, find something to laugh about, like in this situation where we're constantly being confronted and what we've been pointing out is, an increasingly militarized RCMP. And that militarization isn't just them rolling up with machine guns, even though they are rolling up with machine guns. But we could see in their, their incident response structure, we could see in how they operate. They, they have this black budget. Like, we need CERG, this outfit that's emerged only within the past few years here in BC that responds to uh, incidents related to... Uh, you know, fossil fuels or, you know, these national interest projects. And essentially there's no oversight. I've not heard of a single successful case where a complaint has actually resulted in any action or where a politician has said, okay, maybe we need to, I don't know, come up with some new legislation because this is problematic. These guys are violating rights left, right, and center, and we absolutely don't have a leash on them. No, no, no. There's this this uh, this convenient silence that exists with the federal NDP or not federal provincial NDP right now, which basically is okay. We're going to sit back. We're going to let these goons run loose, uh, fill, fulfill everything that industry needs for their projects to have the certainty to get to completion, and we're just going to be silent, not say anything. We're not going to interfere. Leave it as status quo and pretend we're being impartial about it. But the thing is, we know that, you know, the NDP are 100% complicit in this. We've been banging on their doors all these years, trying to get them to do one thing. It could be one pen stroke that could fix the situation, get it back to the table with the Wet'suwet'en people, and, uh, you know, actually do it right. 
to the point where, okay, maybe Canada needs to realize we effed up. There needs to be consent involved. Undrip is on the table now. Let's actually figure out how to make it work instead of them forcing it through as always. And then their lawyers coming at us in the courts saying, well, actually your rights don't exist. Sorry. We don't recognize your land. Sorry. Yeah. And that is, um, that is the government that has made a big deal out of, uh, out of adopting the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people. Right. So they have um, been talking a big game uh, about how they're leaders on indigenous rights, but when the rubber hits the road, I mean, it's provincial crown attorneys, it's it's crown prosecutors that are essentially ignoring the Delgamukhbizdewe court case, and it's provincial judges that are granting injunctions, which place uh, like hundreds of square kilometers of indigenous land under the authority of private corporations with the RCMP enforcing this um, exclusion zone. And anybody who enters and crosses this imaginary line is subject to arrest. So what is that if not land theft? Like that's that is um, using the lower courts and using injunctions as a blunt instrument to essentially declare large swaths of indigenous territory off limits, where you cannot practice your rights, you cannot hunt, you cannot um, do anything uh, that could be considered a, a, a disruption or a threat to pipeline construction. So that's basically everything, and. At the same time, you have nations like the Nuchatlat on the west coast of Vancouver Island that are bringing a title case. Like they're actually using the Supreme Court precedent um, in Delgamukh and in the Chilcotin case to lay claim to their own territory or a portion of their own territory. And what does the BC government do? They send crown lawyers to say, you guys don't even exist. You never were a nation. You were too small and puny to have ever controlled territory. You never had exclusive control over this part of the island. This is like they just nitpick every single piece of their claim to say um, that this is crown land. This became crown land as soon as white people got here. And we extinguished your title just by default. And the fact that you don't have control over logging operations on your territory now shows that you don't have title. And therefore, they're asking the judge to throw the case out. And it's the most um, racist retrograde, like like 1970s style um, court argument. And all of this is happening under this progressive NDP government in BC. So um, I was wondering, Janelle, maybe going back to the um, to the Apatera campaign, for people that aren't in BC, can you explain like some of the stuff that she was saying and why it was such a threat to not just the NDP as a party, but the people who pull their strings? Like what, what was it that made her such a, so radioactive to the people that actually run this province? Yeah, yeah, that's, even go bigger for a second like all that you're explaining to me is just reiterating what I know is is that um Canada's existence um on these lands is to basically operate like a resource extraction company and so all levels of government have a role of upholding it and really like our progressive government's right now's role is is to continue doing that but while saying and doing the nice things that to placate people so they don't see the insidious nature of what's going on, like yeah, signing UNDRIP, wearing orange shirts on orange short day, signing climate emergencies, using movement rhetoric in their own. Um, and in BC, um, given that we have a, a lot of pristine landscape that they want to use for forestry, they want to turn the entire interior into an LNG um, mega energy site and yeah the fact that we have these really strong nations and um uh 
yeah, the uh, the court uh, predecessor of, of Belgamuk that should be affirming the rights of several nations that are on, on these ceded lands. Like, that's the reason it's so insidious that, that they really, really have to double down. And so the, the BCNDP has had it fairly easy um, getting to govern in a majority the last five years while we're doing all those things. And um, yeah, Anjali's campaign came in and finally offered a really solid health plan and a really solid climate plan um, that was um, acknowledging that we, we can't continue to do or allow BC to operate like a resource extraction company, a bunch of resource extraction companies in a trench coat, um, and that we couldn't be building new fossil fuel in- infrastructure while still meeting our climate targets and keeping the people and the planet safe. And of course, she had the backing of tens of thousands of British Columbians who are really, uh, yeah, fed up with having to live through climate emergency after climate emergency extreme forest fires, extreme floods, a heat wave that killed hundreds of people. Um, and then, of course, like on top of that, like in a drug poisoning crisis that is are, are killing her, her family and friends. And um, Anjali came with a grassroots campaign within like what, like 35 days that had the support of tens and thousands of people. And that was really strong on policy on how we would address these conversion crises. And um, they got scared because they can't um, allow somebody that has those things while still being loyal to the corporate backing, which, yeah, has a lot to do with forestry and, and LNG. Um, and so they got scared and really publicly showed where their loyalties lie. And it's not with us, it's with, with corporations, because that is what. Uh, colonial governments are are meant to do and they're trying to yeah stop people from from trying to reclaim that space thanks janelle we have a really special guest uh joining us um something of an organizing legend uh here on the west coast and we're really excited to welcome harsha walia to the uh to the panel harsha thanks so much for um for jumping in um i figured maybe we could do a little round of introductions and um, and then maybe we'll get you to tell us a horror story. We've been just going around talking about um, cops taking over City Hall in Vancouver, uh, the NDP brass um, orchestrating a disqualification of a, of a left um, democratic socialist climate justice candidate. We've been talking about um, the Crown using injunctions and, and police raids to seize what's owed in land. But... Um, I'll let you think about your horror story. Maybe why don't we do a little bit of an introduction and then um, and then we'll get Harsha to introduce yourself. Do you want to go first? Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I guess we could have done this before, but my name is Colin Sutherland Wilson. Uh, my Gixan name is Hochki'i. And I'm from the Gixan Nation um, up in northern British Columbia. We are neighbors and allies with the Wet'suwet'en people. And my family, the Gitlu from Hetwit, has been actively blockading a... Uh, a series of, I guess, forest uh, cut blocks. And yeah, we're, we're not too far from our liberated Lachie, just down the way. Yeah, right out the window here, there's a view of a valley that is not under the authority of the crown. And um, where Colin's family has been uh, just living according to their own uh, ayoch, their own law, and and writing 
history um, in real time, which has been very exciting to witness. I'm Kai Nagata. Um, my day job is at an organization called Dogwood, which has been in the news lately for um, signing up too many people to the BCNDP. I'm also a volunteer board member with uh, with Harbinger Media Network. And um, yeah, happy to be uh, raising money for independent media tonight and also just trying to expand the conversation to talk about um, uh, systems of governance outside of uh, Canadian politics. Um, Janelle, do you want to do a quick reintroduction? Sure. My name is Janelle Point. Um, like I said, my day job is at the David Suzuki Foundation, but um, most importantly, I, I identify as an Afro-Indigenous organizer. I'm from Stolotan First Nation, which is just east of Wet'suwet'en. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired by the Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan and all the ways they've been able to continue to hold on to and, and, and after law and continue to write um, new laws to protect their people in, in place. I think on my territories, I, I, I've seen a lot about how extraction degrades the land and also contributes to crises like missing and murdered Indigenous women and also is all done to undermine um, my own nation's laws. So I'm really inspired by all the, the nations that continue to enact their, their own laws. Harsha, over to you. Thank you all. Thanks for having me. And it's so good to be in shared space with you all and to connect with you. Uh, my name is Harsha Walia. I use she, her, her pronouns. I'm on unceded Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish territories. Uh, I'm from Punjab. Uh, came here about 20 years ago onto these lands and territories. Uh, my day job is in the anti-violence sector. I've worked around issues of gender-based violence for about 20 years. Um, and I'm also an organizer and anti-racist, anti-colonial, uh, migrant justice, abolitionist struggles for about 20 years. Um, yeah, that's me. And thanks again for having me. And the author of Border and Rule, which is on my shelf over there. I won't run over and grab it, but um, yeah, thank you for sending a signed copy all the way up to Northern BC. Um, Harsha, do you want to tell us a horror story? You got a spooky tale about the West Coast or a story you want to highlight? Oh, I mean, I, it's there's so much and I feel like uh, I'm sure you all have covered it. Um and, you know, maybe it would get pedantic, but the entire creation of, of British Columbia is a horror story. And uh, as we know, the creation of the of the RCMP and its roots in the Northwest Mounted Police, um, a horror story. I had a hard time coming up with one because also they're so interconnected, as I, I know we all know, uh, thinking about the horror story of, of toxic drug supply and, you know, the fact that, you know, six people every day are dying in this province, of course, across these lands. But what that means in terms of um, enforced and manufactured death, um, I'm also I guess maybe the horror story and there's many horror stories, but maybe to think through this conversation uh, I'm thinking a lot about indentured labor um, and the horror story of, you know, stolen labor on stolen land in its many forms. Um, and, you know, particularly BC, uh, we, you know, you all mentioned that you've talked about Ken Sim um, and how he was endorsed by the Vancouver police, but BC is also quite unique in its rhetoric of diversity and inclusion. And, you know, this idea of cities like Vancouver being diverse. And, you know, right now in the news, um, major cities across Canada are boasting, you know, more than majority population being black and brown uh, in the next few decades. Um, and so I'm thoughtful about how that rhetoric of multiculturalism, which is similar to the rhetoric of reconciliation, um, how that rhetoric masks such deep violence. 
Um, and particularly when it comes to indentured labor, migrant labor, and, you know, um, for, for centuries on these territories, we have the history of the Chinese head tax, the fact that for every mile of track that was laid that we know that dispossessed indigenous lands, there was also one Chinese Canadian worker and one Chinese worker who died. And that's prior to the imposition of the Chinese head tax when Chinese were Chinese people, particularly Chinese men, were barred completely um, through the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed on July 1st, 1923. And it's a day known as Chinese humili as Humiliation Day, you know, so a day that, of course, many Indigenous peoples um, don't celebrate, you know, so this the Canada Day, which, of course, is rejected rightfully so by um, many Indigenous peoples because it's enforced colonialism um, and the enforced status of dominion that actually has no jurisdiction on Indigenous lands. There's a parallel history of that also being Humiliation Day, uh, a day of migrant exclusion, of humiliation, um, and really of this ideology that um, particularly BC, although across all of Canada, but the resource-driven, extractive um, economy and colonial capitalist economy of BC that is driven by this idea of stolen land and expendable labor. And, you know, BC is one of those provinces that has perfected the model of migrant work where people come and work under extremely grueling, horrific conditions um, where you are often, you know, if you're a farm worker, you're often literally held captive. And I don't use that word lightly. Um, in camps where you're not allowed to leave those camps, your passports are held, you're crammed uh, in household, you know, in a house in one instance, there was 96 people in a single house where you're forced to live. You're under intense surveillance in labor conditions where even during COVID, you're not given any PPE where you're dying. People, farm workers were dying, uh, similar to people being, you know, people who were dying, who were incarcerated. Um, and then many of them, when their labor is no longer needed, they're deported. And these are predominantly black and brown migrant workers who are displaced due to legacies of imperialism, Canadian mining, increasingly climate change, and who are made deportable. You know, the people who pick pick food, who, you know, work gas stations, do construction, do all of this work. And so I'm thinking of this horror story of the ways in which um, there is the rhetoric of diversity and multiculturalism that makes it seem as if though the presence of black and brown people is welcomed when in fact it's built on uh, a legacy of genocide, enslavement and uh, indentured labor. And that continues today. And the vast majority of people, I guess I'll end with this is, you know, the vast majority of people who are coming to Canada are coming with precarious status. So it's not the myth of immigrants. You know, the idea that people are coming with some kind of like stability or permanent resident status, it's people coming with precarious status and that precarious status is what makes them exploitable on these lands. I, I wanted to mention something that, um, that sort of tied back uh, to a discussion we had earlier about rail blockades, because we were talking about how uh, ITAC, the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, uh, was mulling whether to apply the term domestic terrorism uh, to Indigenous people who were disrupting uh, rail traffic in response to the invasion of Wet'suwet'en territory. And I remembered a moment um, up here uh, last winter when um, Colin and a number of other people around this territory um, were not blockading train tracks, but maintained a presence near the railway in New Hazleton after a violent police raid here. And there was 24-hour um, police surveillance. You know, you had 
uh, police and private security taking shifts around the clock and idling trucks for like a month, um, watching people do karaoke, hand out soup, hand out socks, hand out naloxone. And some of the most supportive people uh, were the international students from Punjab and train tracks, because in the middle of the night, if you needed to use the bathroom or go and get warm or go get coffee, it was it was kids who were like in this extremely precarious um, situation, right? Who were like working uh, unsafe jobs for low wages in the middle of Northern BC. And they were the ones who were like sort of the warmest and most uh, helpful to uh, people in, in New Hazleton all winter. And I just, I was struck by um, just that, I don't know, uh, human connection. Uh, and it reminded me of like all of the layers that you're talking about, Harsha, to uh, the fact that this whole economy only functions off of that exploited and stolen labor. It only, it only, the whole country only hangs together because uh, the rest of the world is desperate enough that you can go and recruit and make people pay to come to this country to compete in this lottery to get a permanent residency. So they will work the low wage jobs next to the train tracks that were built by largely uh, Chinese laborers and for which the Gixan and the Watsota never received a penny. So the train tracks that come through these territories where they had, um, you know, people arrested for disrupting survey crews a hundred years ago. And the exact same story is playing out over again, where CN Rail Police, a private security company with guns, and RCMP are threatening Gixana Witsoden people, mothers and children with arrest now uh, for objecting to the flow of stolen goods through their territory for which there's just no compensation and ever has been. And so when people talk about BC as this like, I don't know, progressive utopia, or, or, or you know, we get sort of described in the rest of Canada as this kind of like left-leaning uh, jurisdiction, it just it just makes my skin crawl because mm -hmm. if you open your eyes to what this place is built on, um, it just it seems like a total nightmare, and that's <laughs> that's why I wanted to talk about it on Halloween. <laughs> um, Harsha, I wanted to ask: is there is there anything that you wanted to highlight? Any work um, that you wanted to lift up? either of people just like existing outside of these oppressive systems or, or people who are actively resisting um, some of the, some of the power structures that you're talking about. Anybody you want to give a shout out who's just um, keeping some, some hope alive in what are otherwise pretty, pretty grim times. Well, folks, folks in this virtual space are keeping hope alive across these lands. I hope you, I hope you know that um, the work that you're doing the good work that you're doing and the ways in which land reclamations are surging across these lands. Um, but really, I think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm always hesitant to give particular shout outs because I know I'm going to forget somebody, but um, I do want to say that I think, I, I do think there's incredible work going on across these lands, across these systems, right? There's more and more people who realize that colonialism and capitalism are a deathscape. Um, that our only liberation is tied into each other. And thank you for sharing that, that story. It reminds me of a similar one at the Healing Walk, one of the first healing walks at the Alberta Tar Sands, um, where, you know, I don't know if people know, I'll give this brief brief context, but the, the Healing Walk was happening in the Alberta Tar Sands, organized by Fort Chip and other communities, Lubicon Cree and other communities, Indigenous communities impacted by the Tar Sands. And there was a Healing Walk that was organized for years, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I want to say. And when we went on that walk, um, led by elders and matriarchs in the community, 
um, every year they would say that, you know, the most kind of responses that they would get that were positive in this intense environment, you know, with a lot of particularly white settler uh, workers was predominantly migrant workers who were like, we didn't even know we were coming here to work. Like we had no idea where we were going. We had no idea what the conditions would be. So it's just reminding me of um, what you were sharing about the international students. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's so many folks and, you know, and also just thoughtful that so many people never existed in the system, by which I mean, you know, so many people are oppressed by the system, but who have never existed in the system, you know, freedom babies, communities that have refused to live in the system, non-status people who don't actually have documents in the system, whether by choice or otherwise, uh, you know, so many communities in inner cities, whether it's the down, downtown east side or in Prince George and Prince Rupert, um, who are living outside of the system because the system has expended um, and expel those people, right? Um, and so the kinds of ways in which people come together um, to share community, to share space, to create other ways of being, to create alternative relations, not to romanticize it, but like as, as a point of necessity, um, those are deeply inspiring. And I know I, I've, a lot of folks have been talking about uh, what's going on uh, in Wet'suwet'en. Um, I've had the honor and privilege of being on the, uh, being invited up to the Inta since the first action camp. Um, back in 2010. And so just, you know, seeing what's happening on the Yinta, uh, not just what makes the news, but the daily, the daily work of resurgence and reclamation and asserting sovereignty um, and what's so with laws uh, and governance, you know, and knowing that that's happening all across, all across these lands in so many different ways um, is just so deeply inspiring. And, you know, of course we know it doesn't get the attention that it deserves because what gets more attention is flashy campaigns in the city. Um, but I hope folks know that the work that's happening everywhere uh, across this province in whatever form it takes is deeply inspiring and is deeply moving and people are watching. Thanks so much, Harsha. Colin or Janelle, did you want to talk about any um, examples of, of people existing outside of or resisting uh, this colonial nightmare that you just wanted to lift up? Gosh, well, I... I just want to give a shout out to Wilp Squinanit here on Gixan territory because they recently held uh, a Gualchienes feast, which is a type of feast we haven't seen in a long time, in which they basically made a declaration about their territory, that it's off limits to BC, off limits to the Crown, and that they have their, their own plan in action for that territory, for their family, and for the young people. And even in that feast, they... You know, perform something I've never seen in my lifetime here on Dixon territory, but a rite of passage ceremony for some of the young women in their house. And, you know, just deeply inspired by that, because I think at the root of all this, like, you know, we're always fighting. We're always in the struggle, that good fight. But, you know, at the bottom, we we just have to rely on each other's humanity. We have to rely, you know, on on, on the care. Like my elders always said, we're sharing and caring people. And just a big uh, thank you for reminding me of the homies from the gas bar. You bailed us out after we were living in a retrofitted uh, car shelter for a month in the north in the winter. And, you know, we had, you know, kids, young kids driving by from Smithers, you know, shooting fireworks at us, telling us to get, get a job. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there with like lawyers and doctors and people just taking a break from their night shift. And, you know, some of the most hardworking people you'll ever need like people who I guess the mainstream that wouldn't consider to be blockaders, but you know, just the people who get it, 
like the people in community, the people who just have a heart, who are there to work hard for the families, you know, just trying to make a better life. Like that's, I, I think that's the boat we can all stand in. And, you know, ultimately we're working hard to, to create something beautiful here out of this colonial mess. It's, it's hard work, but it's, it's worth it. Janelle, anyone you want to shout out? Yeah, not anyone in particularly like, uh, you guys summed up a, a lot of the, the beautiful work that's happening on these lands. Um, maybe I would give a shout out to all those people that were, were tending and caring for the land during the drought. I know so many amazing um, caretakers and gardeners that were busy um, trying to care for their, their native plants and, and their gardens that feed people, feed the land. They're looking after us now that we're getting this, this heavy rain. And um, I think that work is so political and so beautiful. Thanks, Janelle. I want to bring on um, Andre Goulet to, uh, to wrap things up and say goodnight. Andre, you must be a little tired. You've been streaming for 12 hours now. Are you kidding? Marino and I are feeling super fresh. I've actually tacked on an extra six hours, Marino. We have some more guests coming up. It's going to be incredible. We're going till 6 a.m. Eastern. Um, Yeah, no, it's been a really cool stream. And it's been really nice hearing all of you guys um, getting to just sort of talk about uh, the state of things out on the West Coast. And so this has been a really nice way to anchor, like, geographically the end of the stream with with the stories you guys have to share and stuff so it's been really really cool and i really really appreciate it so harsha janelle nice to meet you colin nice to meet you and i'm so happy that kai was able to bring together this kind of panel to wrap up what we were doing today which was really just trying to like pull together um a really broad disparate group of people who really share the same values and that's one of the reasons why it really felt like um a special stream so i just want to shout out hillary agro jess green press progress with emily leadham stephen maguziak Rumnik Johal and Mitchell Thompson, The Breach, o- Drew Ojajay and uh, Sophia Barsowski from CUTV, The Hoser, The Grind, Darts and Letters with Gordon Caddick and Jay Cockburn, Pivot with Gabriel Brassard-Lecourt, Alexi Ross, Fanny Tan and Sam Harper, Briar Patch with Simon Desai, Megan Linton, Sarah Burrell and John Cameron, Pullback with Kristen and Kyla, and they had David Camfield talking about his new book, Future on Fire, with Lauren Latour from Green Majority Radio. Replay with Shama Rangwala and Desmond Cole, Alberta Advantage, Forgotten Corner, and Kino Lefter. That was awesome with Bridget Sterling. And you guys for really wrapping this up in a super cool way. A huge shout out to Marino. And I'm so happy, Marino, that uh, the Big Shiny Takes Institute was able to really bring this home and, and really like... Uh, navigate this long ass stream so it's been incredible thank you thank you andre for sharing the link to fernwood publishing as well uh where you can get harsh's books okay we'll check out janella point on twitter harsh are you still on twitter wow okay definitely worth logging in i quit because it was um breaking my brain but i will make a special like bookmark uh of people to log in and check on once in a while harsha should be on that list janelle should be on that list colin's more active on Instagram, I would say. Yeah, uh, get booth from Hetwit Media. It's it's kind of a mouthful, and uh, maybe someone can type it down somewhere. Um, and aside from that, just so happy to be here. Poggers in the chat. <laughs>
Yeah, and thank you guys a lot for doing this. And Kai, thank you very much for putting this together. Um, this has been awesome. So thanks, everyone, for checking out the uh, I Know What You Did Last Telethon Harbinger uh, fundraising campaign. This is the kickoff of a month-long fundraising campaign where we're trying to go from 100 members, which we reached today, uh, all the way up to 150 uh, supporting members of the Harbinger community, helping us build this kind of community with, with like, you know, 45 people across the so-called country of Canada, uh, putting together this kind of show and these kind of values and putting them forward. So it's been awesome. Thank you, all you guys. I'll say good night. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, you guys. Okay, take care. Bye. Est-ce que tu as peur des méchants esprits Oh, monsieur Oui, 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 oui C'est Halloween C'est Halloween Hey C'est Halloween C'est Halloween Pendant l'Halloween Tu peux être ce que tu veux Féroce ou un serpent bleu. Il se fait tard quand tu es à la maison.